Hello, welcome back. John Mitchell and Steve Sponbrook here again with Compliance for the Sake of the Patient. Steve, good to, good to hear you today. Yeah, you too. How are things up in Indiana? They're good. Stormy. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you can't hear that behind me. Um, but, yeah, we got the same problem here. So uh, I mean, you know, provide some nice dramatic sound effects as we get <laughs> there you go, the soundtrack of this thing, right? <laughs> Well, so, we're gonna we're gonna dive right in today. Um, hope if you're listening today that you get a chance to uh, take a deep breath from work and um, from healthcare, just to 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 think a little bit um, about the big picture and about keeping our patients as safe as possible. Um, we're actually kind of in a uh, in a part two of a conversation a conversation about barriers and differential pressure. Um, we started. If you haven't listened to the episode right before this, you might want to check that one out first. Um, kind of goes hand in hand, differential pressure and barriers. Um, so going to get Steve talking today um, about the relationship between the two, but then also just kind of continue the conversation um, leading into the importance of barriers. So Steve, um, maybe let's just start with, um, you know, the relationship between differential pressure and barriers and just sort of that connection between the two and then just kind of let you go a little bit. Sure. Well, uh, probably in the analogy I like to use, particularly when I'm talking to folks that don't do construction and that sort of thing for a living, when I'm talking about the barriers and how important they are and uh, how you know we have to seal them to the deck, et cetera, et cetera. And the analogy that I use is a straw, which I know right now are politically incorrect tools. But um, <laughs> if you've ever had a straw, you know, it's got a couple of holes in it and you try to take a drink of whatever it is you're trying to drink through that straw, uh, you get mostly air. Right? You don't get a whole lot of fluid. And the reason for that is because the, the pressure is going to take the path of least resistance, right? The same thing is true with when we're trying to create differential pressure on a construction site. Um, if we don't have a good barrier, no matter how we construct that, we'll get into construction here in a little bit, we're going to be basically sucking through a straw with holes in it. <laughs> well said. So we're, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> as simple as you can put it. Great um, yeah. And so, you know, you can put, you can pull as much air uh, as, you know, you can add, keep throwing mechanical equipment at the thing to the point where you do get a good differential. But the problem with that uh, can be that because you don't have a good seal between your site and other occupied places within the building, potentially upsetting the critical air um, pressure relationships in the occupied spaces. So with the best of intentions, you can actually create some problems. So you know, I think in the second episode, we talked about differential pressure and I said, you know, barriers and differential pressure in my mind go hand in hand. You know, you can't have one without the other, but we spent so much time, uh, which I tend to be able to do for some reason, talking about <laughs> differential pressure um, that we really didn't get a chance to talk about barriers. And so um, and today kind of talking about the barriers, there's, there's, multiple reasons why we were going to build barriers between our construction site and any occupied space in a healthcare occupancy or really any kind of occupancy, particularly in healthcare. Um, we're going to focus today on the infection prevention reasons, but uh, just this past week had some very detailed discussions about a really complex project that's going on in a uh, operating room department where we're converting a special procedures room that you know was basically a scope endoscopy bronchoscopy space into a new operating room and you know doing that we're basically doing demolition and construction and all that goes with it inside the sterile core of the OR um, so 
differential pressure and barriers are critical components. We spent a lot of time talking about where we're going to put those, how we're going to construct them. Some of the variables and the materials we were going to use, uh, the techniques that we were going to use were dependent upon not only infection prevention goals, but also noise, vibration, uh, cleanliness, and all of those things rolled into one. So kind of starting this out when you're thinking about how we're going to build barriers, where we're going to build barriers, keep in mind that you've got the infection control risk that you're trying to mitigate, but you've also got life safety risk. You've got right. noise and vibration risk. You've got all of the other things. So don't do each one of those in a silo. Look at these things together um, and your end result will be much, much better. What are some of the what are some of the issues with with doing that in a silo? I mean, how do you if if you currently are doing that in a silo, how do you combine all of those concerns at one time? You know, do you have some advice about that? Yeah, there's actually a very simple and that's a great question, by the way, John. There, there's actually a very simple solution to that, and that's getting all the primary players around the table at one time. Yeah. Um, and so the most common problem that I see is we'll. we'll for example, in, if infection prevention and construction are driving the conversation and the people responsible for life safety aren't at the table, then it's perfectly acceptable to build a barrier made out of plastic, for yeah. example, that's going to provide a, a great seal and do all that we wanted to do and in, in helping us create that differential pressure that's so important to make sure that we don't expose our patients to pathogens. But that plastic increases the combustible load, and it's a problem for CMS and Joint Commission and anybody related to life safety. Um, so that would be the opportunity for someone in the safety department or someone whoever's responsible for life safety to go, hey, wait a minute, you know, we can't yep. use plastic here we might be able to use a fire resistant plastic or better yet uh, we want to build a wall that's got uh, fire resistant rating to it and so uh, it, with the best of intentions I've seen multiple times where more from a compliance perspective than a safety patient perspective there's been problems created um, but still you know, the compliance is there for a reason if we don't want to introduce uh, a higher well we want to introduce a lower level, let me rephrase that, of life safety into the environment in an effort to create or mitigate infection risk. We want to do, we want to reduce risk all around when yeah. we're doing these things. So and that takes that's collaboration and time. I mean, that's, that's probably part of what, you know, is causing the problem is this sense that this has got to be important enough to take the time to have a meeting to get the right people at the table for the conversation. Yeah, and so the, and the biggest pitfalls that I see in that, and we're kind of going down a rabbit hole I didn't really want to go into, but I think it's a, I think it's absolutely imperative to talk about it. Is so I mean everybody's being asked to do, and the big phrase around Ashy a couple of weeks ago was do less with less, right? We're doing yeah. everybody's got they got less resources, and we've got to do we've got to do the minimum to get by. Um, there's just all that pressure, and so particularly with hospitals with very dynamic environments. Um, with multiple players involved, you know, just scheduling the meeting can be daunting. You know, try to yeah. get everybody around the table. And even if you put a standing meeting on the agenda or on the calendar, which a lot of people have, you know, the, the third Thursday or the second Tuesday or whatever, um, even then it gets to be a challenge for people. So what I've seen happening a lot, and it's a trend that I'm not really comfortable with, frankly, is that, you know, well, we won't really have a meeting. We'll just, you know, circulate 
the paperwork or, or better yet, we'll put everything on eBuilder or some other kind of website, yeah. uh, shared space that allows everybody to look at the form and enter some data. And that, you, unfortunately, you miss the, the, the most important aspect of having the collaborative in, in my perspective. And that's all these different minds working together to imagine the risks that are possible and coming up with solutions to mitigate those. And so I see that happening far too often. Um, making it a priority is, to me, is incredibly important, particularly, and I, I don't want to see, there, you know, there's a longstanding quote, and I don't know who quote who was the first one to say it. It was someone tied to Ashy, I believe. It might have been George Mills, actually, that said there are no small construction projects in healthcare, and I believe that yeah. completely. There are no small construction projects, but there are some that are big. Um, and there are some that are risky. And, you know, I was talking about this project that we were working on last week. It's, you know, again, it's not a very big project, but it's in a very high risk environment. Um, so take, we ended up spending a good hour plus just talking about where we're going to put the barriers, how we're going to create differential pressure, where that's going to go, how we're going to monitor that to make sure it's being done effectively before we start the project, as the project's ongoing, all the way up until the bitter end. And uh, yeah, having all those people around the table helped. And it actually, in fact, we came up with some pretty eloquent solutions but because we had different perspectives. And I think that in itself it illustrates the value of having that many people around the table and involved. Absolutely. I'm glad that was a rabbit hole we went down. I think it's important to, to uh, you know, to address some of those those concerns just that we've got to take that time and energy. It's a good tip. Yeah. I mean, the ultimate thing again is, is having everybody there and keeping an open mind. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think we, we touched upon this maybe in episode one, they're all run all three of them are running <laughs> together in my mind at this point, but, you know, we're talking about Frank Borman's failure of imagination. And then the quote right. I found online about, you know, what is, what is the takeaway from that? Well, part of the takeaway is we should never fail to imagine, but also we should not discount the imagination to others. And I'm paraphrasing that to, for the sake of time, sure. but you know, the bottom line is, you know, getting into these conversations open-mindedly enough to get, to listen to our colleagues that are from a totally different skill set and perspective um, that whatever it is they, they raise as a concern you know, it may be absolutely, you know, off the mark because they don't understand construction or they don't, you know, still it's a concern. It needs to be addressed. And, and, and if you keep that open mind occasionally, if nothing else, it will trip that little switch that gives you a better idea than you came into the room with. Yeah. Um, and we, we've seen that play out quite a few times and um, we're getting ready to get involved in a very large uh, sterile processing department modification that's going to be a lot of fun, but it's going to be a daunting task mm -hmm. and you know, I'm looking forward to it. But a big part of this project is how and when barriers are going to be constructed, where they're going to be, what types we're going to use. Um, and to kind of, and we're in the early phases of talking about this, but to be, uh, to give you a, a, an idea of how this would evolve, we're going to create temporary barriers to create temporary barriers. And what I mean by that is we're going to go in, we know it's going to take us a day to build the type of barrier that we want, which is going to be metal studs with sheetrock on either sides with sound insulation in them. 
um, and some other features. And in order to do that and to do that safely, then we're going to put up a plastic barrier um, that's flame resistant plastic, a temporary construction barrier, create that negative pressure around the area where we're building our more permanent construction barrier. But we also recognize that as we go through this project, the risks are going to change as they will with any project, depending on what phase we're in. You know, when we start doing the demolition, it's going to be really, really high. Um, and as we start to do the construction, it's going to remain pretty high. But when we get down towards the, the bitter end of this thing and we're doing, you know, finishes and punch lists and that sort of thing, then this major construction barrier can come down and we can replace it with something a little bit less durable, made out of plastic. Um, and a little bit easier for us to handle. So, you know, depending on what scenario you're facing, you could have several different types of barriers on a single project. Um, and that's what uh, a lot of times I get the question. In fact, I got this question two days ago from a relatively new IP infection preventionist wanting to know two things, you know, what kind of barriers should they require and how often should they require particle counts to be taken and of course, I gave him my typical consultant's answer, which it depends. Um, <laughs> That's your he, favorite answer. Actually, he phrased the question by, I've been looking all over the place and I can't get a straight answer to this. And yeah, hopefully you'll help me out. And I said, well, it depends. So uh, there you go. You didn't get a straight answer out of me either. But then I went on to explain and said, yeah, hey, look, let's take this project we're talking about right now, for example, that the risk profile is going to change daily. Right. And, and when we get in and we're in the worst place in the hospital to be doing demolition and that's where we are. And I don't really describe it too much because I don't want to identify the client. <laughs> but when we get in there and we start tearing up this building that's 40 years old in a very high risk environment, we may want to be doing particle counts every hour. I mean, we, we need to determine based on several other factors, but, you know, that's going to change as the project changes. Same thing with the barriers. And that's what I explained to you. We're going to start out with something plastic so we can build something a little more durable and permanent. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to specify where that's going to go. We're going to be very thoughtful about where we're going to take air out of the construction site and where we're going to put it um, and set some parameters around when the contractor can actually start that process just to make sure that we do what we got to do to protect our patients. And so that's what, you know, a lot of it is. I mean, there's, and there's a lot of different types of barriers that we see out there. There's actually some companies now that are they're building some very, uh, very convenient types of barrier uh, systems. Uh, I want to name, I won't name any brand names. I probably should, but I won't. Um, but they're actually very, well done. The problem is they're most of them are built to seal to a ceiling, whether that's a lay-in ceiling or and in perfect world, if it were a hard ceiling, it would they they would be the perfect solution to temporary construction barriers. The problem is most of our hospitals have lay-in ceilings in them. And once we, you know, this barrier goes up and it seals to a lay-in ceiling and then we remove the ceiling inside the construction site. Now we no longer have an adequate separation between us and the construction site. So we, you, know, you think about it from the straw analogy, as soon as we pull that ceiling tile out in the construction site, not only are we trying to get the whole construction site negative, but we're also trying to pull all of that interstitial space above the ceiling for the rest of the smoke compartment negative, which may or may not be a good idea. Most likely it is not a good idea. Um, so to really be adequate, and, and provide the kind of risk mitigation that we're looking for for our patients, you end up needing to do a combination of a system like that 
with some type of barrier that we can construct out of plastic or something above the ceiling to seal it around all the stuff that's up there to create a true separation between our patients, our staff and our construction project. So you've got all of these different kinds of barriers out there. I'm, I mean, you mentioned that we're not going to name names. Nobody's sponsoring this podcast. So, um, yeah, but, but well, when, MSL is. <laughs> yeah, except for MSL. We don't mind saying that name. Um, yeah. When it, when it comes to um, those barriers, you know, how should you start? I mean, what how can you start to to kind of um, filter down to who's the best and what what I should be using? Well, and that's a good question, and I'll give you my typical answer. It depends. <laughs> now, I mean, a lot of it depends on what we're trying to accomplish, right? Um, some of the great solutions for short-term situations like pulling cable and um, maybe even doing inspections in high-risk areas or using um, these sort of p- portable containment vessels that have built-in HEPA vacuums and things, um, usually they're on casters and they're made out of some kind of durable um, fiber um, type plastic or something durable fabric that you can on a frame. So you, they're telescoping and you put them in a location and you, you set them up. And, and so, yeah, that's great if you're doing something that takes an hour or two hours or maybe even half a day. Um, but the problem is they're small. Uh, so you're working in a confined space. And so you can't really do big projects. If you're doing something that is doesn't require a lot of time, and a lot of, of movement of materials and tools and that sort of thing, then a, a soft type barrier, one of these um, flame resistant or fire retardant type plastic systems is a pretty good solution. Um, there's companies that make systems for hanging that stuff from the ceiling for creating rigid poles and that thing to mm-hmm. type of thing to, to erect those barriers. And then, um, but typically on a longer term projects, especially something that requires to do demolition and move materials in and out. They just don't provide enough durability when you end up puncturing them. And now we've got the straw with holes in it. Right. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that, which is less than ideal. So as we get into these longer, more complex projects, typically we end up with some type of barrier that's made out of uh, durable material like metal studs and sheetrock um, and looks like more like a permanent wall, but it's there for temporary purposes. And, and frankly, when you get into really digging into the codes um, and the NFPA has got a fire protection code, the NFPA 241, it's fire protection during construction periods. And if you've got an area that's that's not sprinkled, then your requirement is to have a one hour um, rated wall between construction and the occupied space. And that happens pretty frequently. So, but there's also a lot of advantages of building a wall like that. For example, I mentioned sound insulation. Insulation. If we're going to do, you know, this kind of long-term project and we're really concerned about, you know, providing a restful environment on the other side or, you know, even if we're working in a space that has, you know, high-risk patients from a sound and vibration perspective, you know, building that type of barrier, going the extra step of adding the insulation really helps reduce some of those risks. Um, so more often than not, we end up on longer term projects and more complex projects, building rigid construction barriers. And that's where these systems I mentioned earlier, they, they, their market is to try, or their product is to try to eliminate the need to build stick, build 
bears, if you will. And they really do a great job. Um, I don't know that, and I could be wrong as of the date of this recording, but I don't think there's any that meet the UL fire rating yet. Mm -hmm. I know there, there are some that are seeking that. And when we get to that point, yeah, um, provided that we've got a seal all the way, yeah, that's going to make a big difference. So, yeah. um, you know, the one thing I do like about them too is, is they should be a relatively cleanable surface. Um, provided that we've got a process to clean them. And that's one of the questions I always ask the clients is, you know, it's, okay, we're going to take that, we're going to use it for construction project A, and then we're going to take it apart and put it in a storage area and we're going to set it up for construction project B. What's the cleaning protocol between the two? You know, because what you don't want to do is, you know, collect dust on this barrier during the first project, store it nicely, and then bring it and, you know, deliver it to the environment for the second project. That makes a lot of sense. Happens yeah. all the time. Yeah, I bet it does. And, you know, you think about you, th you think about this in terms of just the message of our podcast and what we're trying to really do from a big picture with this. And, you know, the, the concept of just having a barrier up is just not enough. It has to be the right barrier. It has to, to be the right for your situation. And as you always love to say, it just depends. And so that, yeah. <laughs> that means yeah. you have to be educated. You have to be um, listening to stuff like this, you have to be out um, at the NFPA. You've got to be out at Ashy, learning what it what it means to do this well, right? Yeah, and you know one of the reasons behind this podcast series, and one of the reasons I want to start with the construction stuff, is because not everybody has the opportunity to get out to one of our Ashy programs. And when I say ours, because I'm on the faculty, and yeah. you know, I kind of feel like I have a little bit of ownership there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we see couple of hundred people a year, maybe, you know, maybe four or 500 a year in those programs, but there's far more people out there that are doing this kind of work in hospitals across the country than can ever make it to a healthcare construction workshop or a CHC certified healthcare constructor program. And so, you know, this is just a, hopefully a way to get out to those folks and provide some education about items that we feel are absolutely critical to providing patient safety. I mean, again, going back to that data, you know, 14 patients a day dying from hospital acquired infections that are directly related to construction and maintenance activities and things that seem really, really, really minor um, can have a huge impact on people's lives. And, you know, you, you, when you have patients that are completely immunocompromised, it really doesn't take much to cause them to get an infection, a fungal infection. And once they get it, it's really difficult to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, so with it, all of this is, is in my mind is w one of the more critical things that we do at MSL is educating people about this. It, the, first of all, helping them be aware that the risks are there and these numbers are there. And then, you know, helping them understand what tools they have in their toolbox that can make sure it doesn't happen in their facility. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good stuff. Um, you know, between the differential pressure episode and the barriers episode, I really feel like this starts to give some perspective just on how important these details are. And these, these, the little things really are the things that become huge and make a difference to the patient in the end of the day. Um, and so, man, we really appreciate you listening, continue to, uh, to dig in, find ways to, to learn more and to become educated and gather your team, um, so that you're getting as many perspectives as possible. Exactly. And, one of the, and we'll talk about this in the next couple of episodes, but cleanliness is a big part of this. Yeah. Uh, how we educate people is a big part of this. 
how we monitor for effectiveness is a big part of this. And so, um, you know, just doing the barriers, the differential pressure is good, um, good but it's not, yeah. it's a good start. That's right. It's a good start. So um, anyway, thank you very much. I appreciate it. John's always, always a lot of fun. It's a good time. It goes fast, you know, and it does uh, go fast. It goes really fast. Thanks so much for listening today. I um, hope that this gives you some perspective today for compliance, not just for the sake of, you know, getting the job done and not getting in trouble um, or, or just for the sake of compliance, but for the sake of the patient and for human life. So thanks for listening today. We'll look forward to next time. Mm-hmm.